Hello and welcome to BB on the Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and in this episode I chat to tuba star and general and artistic director of River City Brass Band, James Gourley. The 65-year-old discusses River City's upcoming composer competition and has all the details on how to get involved. He also looks at how the connection to the American organisation came about and its transformation over the past few years. James reflects on growing up as a young boy in Fife in Scotland and his journey from Buckhaven and Tullis Russell Mills bands to sitting in some of the finest symphony orchestras in the world. But first, how is life in the world of James Gourley? Well, I'm absolutely fine. I've had uh, three shots already of uh, the Pfizer vaccine, so this arm is a wee bit like a pincushion. But uh, I feel safe, safer because of that, I have to say. And, uh, well, that we're back in giving concerts in person and teaching in person and conducting uh, live ensembles at the university. This is all fantastic. I don't think there's a musician alive who will ever take this profession for granted again. There were many beforehand used to say, oh my God, you know, and it's the ancient joke is, uh, how do you cheese off a musician? Well, you give him a gig. And uh, <laughs> he's immediately got something to moan about. But what's so amazing right now in the profession is the enthusiasm for being back and that the sheer joy of playing to a live audience. So yeah, things are great right now. Thank you. Let's talk about the River City Brass Band, which is holding its first composer competition, with composers from all over the world invited to get involved. Tell me about the competition, James, and how the idea came about. Well, I was planning my my season, which starts next week and runs through till May. And uh, we're always trying to innovate here at the River City Brass. And what is better to innovate than to have new repertoire? So then I came up with the idea, we've got a bit of money that we can put aside for prize money. Let's see if we can encourage composers, young and old, to submit new works for us. And uh, they will build them into the programmes. Four will be chosen as winners. Uh, each of the four will receive a prize. Uh, they'll be performed five times. Each of those pieces will be performed five times. And I think that's an important point because it's it's relatively easy to get somebody to play a piece once. Just look at the, the amount of test pieces that get paid once. It's hard to get people to do a series of concerts. And as we have usually five concerts in our concert series, that's five performances that at least that the piece will get. And then we're asking the audience to vote on their favorite. The band will have a vote. And we've got a very distinguished panel of judges, Peter Graham, Martin Ellerby, myself, and two members of the River City Brass Band. People will get feedback on their pieces, of course. And I think that's also something valuable if you've got people of that caliber commenting on your piece, that can only be helpful. But I think the main thing uh, for composers to look at is that here are five performances by a professional group. How often do you get that? And there's a chance to win a wee bit of money as well. Look, as a Scotsman, this is a no-brainer to me. Now, you mentioned, James, that you are one of the members of the judging panel for the competition. What will you be looking for from the composer submissions? Well, what we're looking for, and we've, we've put this in the, in the rubric about the competition, They'll be finishers, so big ending pieces, a piece, entertain, an entertaining piece that would finish a typical brass band concert. Now, just think how useful that's going to be for other brass bands, because 
you know, when people are breaking their heads to wonder what to play at Spennymoor or at Brass in Concert, we do seven Brass in Concerts every year. We cannot duplicate one piece from one concert series to the other because the audience buys the whole series of seven concerts. So they don't want to hear the same thing played twice. That means we are eating that repertoire. I mean, a big, heavy diet. It's almost like McDonald's. We're stuffing it down the whole time. And, uh, and that's why we need repertoire. And that's why we're encouraging the composers to write for us. But as soon as the, comp- the pieces are uh, around, they can be released for other brass bands, which is tremendous, I think. Well, it sounds like a very exciting project indeed. Scores for the River City Brass Composer Competition should be submitted to composer.competition at rcbb.com. That's composer.competition at rcbb.com no later than February the 1st. 2022 and we wish you all the very best with that now let's provide a little bit of context about the river city brass james for anyone who may not know too much about the band it's based in pittsburgh pennsylvania but it's not quite the same setup in terms of the organization as one might be used to in a traditional band perhaps in the uk for example so tell me a little bit about the structure of the organization well, uh, I'm in the River City Bra- uh, Brass Band offices. It's the 27th floor of one of the highest buildings in Pittsburgh. Uh, we have a full-time staff of myself, marketing manager, tickets, operations manager, uh, fundraisers. And so we're really a business. And uh, the business is worth about $1.2 to $1.5 million every year. Uh, which we gain from foundation support, from donations, from ticket sales, and also from selling the band to other presenters. So if there's someone who needs brass players uh, or even harp players or violin players, we like as an agency for that. And so we get requests for weddings and bar mitzvahs and Masonic functions, but we also get requests for full band concerts and uh, smaller group ensembles. And, and that's really how we live. Uh, all the players are paid. They're paid for the rehearsals. They're paid for the concerts, of course. Uh, they're also unionized, so we have to make sure that the, those rates are uh, adhered to and that their conditions are adhered to. And that's absolutely fine because we're really like a, a family you know, with 28 musicians and uh, eight people working for them on, uh, in the office, including myself. You get pretty close to each other, and we think we've drawn even closer to each other over this uh, period of the pandemic when we couldn't actually meet, we couldn't actually play, but kept in close touch through Zoom and uh, played little duos and things like that and made videos with each other. And it's a unique organization. And my job is actually a unique job because I'm CEO of a company and at the same time music director. That's for me really broad tell you more. It's absolutely fantastic. And how did you become involved in the organisation, James? It sounds to me like that Fife accent is a long way from home. When I go home, my my sister says that I've lost my accent completely. But, uh, <laughs> well, I got in, invited to uh, come over to the River City Brass Band about, I want to say, 11 or 12 years ago. The then CEO sent me an email asking me if I knew anybody who would be interested uh, in becoming the new music director of the River City Brass Band. And uh, I truthfully wrote back saying, no, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody, but look, I'm a freelance conductor. If you've got any gigs, send them my way. 
And at that time, I was working with Grimethorpe and Alan Withington always used to do the areas. That meant I was free from Grimethorpe for about a month. So I wrote to River City and said, look, this March, I'm going to be available if you've got any concerts. Well, they did have concerts and uh, they said, come over and do the concerts. So I came over and uh, I worked with them for about three weeks. Well, at first it was really, really bad. It was terrible. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all. But, um, but I, did, I did like Pittsburgh. And I'll tell you what's really interesting. In those days, because about 12 years ago, these things didn't have cameras or anything like that. So I had a video camera in my hand walking down the street, going in the supermarket, making a video diary of this thing, thinking this is a once in a lifetime thing. Come to Pittsburgh, work with the only professional brass band that there is, and then it'll be gone. And uh, I would go into the supermarket with this and people would come up and say, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm here to conduct River City Brass. Have you ever heard of it? And to a person, they all said, oh, those guys are great. We love the River City. That's just a fantastic thing. I would go into into neighborhoods that you know normally white people wouldn't go and sit in the barbershop with this thing and ask about the river if the guy knew the river city brass expect them to say never heard of them because it's not my kind of music even there they said i've heard of the river city brass band this i've i've not been to a show but i think that i've heard they're awesome and i thought this is a really interesting thing that it seems to be part of the fabric of the culture of this town and so then the gigs finished. I went home uh, to Manchester. I was living in Manchester that time. The, the chairman of the board phoned me up and said, we'd like you to come and be the new music director. And I thought, well, it could be very interesting. And um, I knew I had a lot to build up because the company was in really bad debt, like about half a million dollars in debt. And I'm, I'm gulping now because I knew I was taking a big chance. So uh, we came, my wife and I, and we, we turned the business around and... Now we have that half a million is in the positive, uh, not in the negative. But it took a long time, a lot of struggle, a lot of teamwork. But now we're, as you used to say in the UK, now we're really cooking with gas. As we look back on the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, it's been a challenging time for everybody and bands and arts organisations have been no exception. How has River City responded to the challenging environment it's found itself in? Well, the first thing we had to do was to uh, refund tickets that had been bought because we closed down in the middle of a, a March concert series and people had already bought those tickets in great numbers because it was one of our most popular concerts. So we gave the, we gave the audience members the opportunity to either have a refund or to, ref- or, or to let us keep their ticket money. Amazingly enough, about 75% of the audience members said, no, please keep the ticket money. Uh, That was a big help to us, of course, because then we had some cash in the bank that we could use to pay the musicians um, for those concerts and just keep the lights on in the business. And then there were several federal um, assistance programs that were given to arts organizations, uh, and we benefited from that. So again, that kept us going. On the artistic side, we we instigated uh, a weekly concert series from living rooms of the musicians, which we streamed live Uh, on Facebook and on YouTube. And that was really nice. I did a few of them and various of my uh, colleagues uh, literally streamed from their living rooms. That kept us in touch with our uh, fan base. The other thing that we did to keep in touch with the fan base, which is really important to us because about 60% of our income comes from ticket sales. So we want to keep them and we want to keep them happy. We want to keep them loved. 
and show them that they're loved. So every single day for about six months, we sent an email to all of our fans with a, a, a short video clip in, embedded in the email. That was fantastic because we, you know, we didn't solicit donations or anything like that. We just said, here we are, just keeping in touch. Hi, hope you're doing fine. We know you're in lockdown like everybody else. As a result of that, we actually got a significant amount of donations. People would write a, a letter or a, a put a check in the post saying, thanks for the daily email. We're loving them. Boom. Here's a check. Sometimes for a significant amount of money, the biggest one was $5,000. One individual gave $5,000 just because we were sending an email. These are, the, these are the kind of things that we did to survive. Um, and now... Concerts are coming back. We, we, we're selling the band out to other promoters and presenters. And as I said, we're starting our own uh, concert series uh, next week. In fact, we have our first full band rehearsal on Thursday night, uh, which is going to be incredible. How wonderful is it, as I'm sure many bands people all over can subscribe, to have this feeling of band resuming once again? Well, we've, we have resumed, but not with the full 28 comp, uh, complement. We had a, a digital concert series, which we sold online and was very successful. It raised a, a, you know, a good amount, a really good amount of money, much more than we were hoping to do. And it had much further reach than we, we normally do because we're usually a, a, in this region. But the people who bought the digital subscription, they were in Norway, they were in Brazil, they were in all over the place. And, that was that was marvelous. So, but that band that performed there was only nineteen strong. So, there are about five or six members of the band who we've not seen, who've not played anything with us since last March. And so, we're we're really really looking forward to getting together as as a family. Well, now James, we arrive at your piece of the podcast. This is an opportunity to showcase a work of your choosing. So, James, tell me about why you've chosen this piece? Well, this is a piece, um, and this is how I always announce it. It's a piece of, uh, a piece of music by the famous Scottish composer, um, Salvatore <laughs> Puccini, <laughs> who sounds very Scottish. And uh, it's a song that was made famous by the great uh, Scottish tenor, Andrea Bocelli. I'm sure you've heard of that great Scottish <laughs> tenor. Uh, and this is a piece that we play uh, quite regularly in our concert that we call the Celtic Connections, where we we amalgamate the music of Scotland and Ireland, Wales, to Kentucky bluegrass and country music. And in that show, we usually are assisted or aided and abetted, people might say, by the uh, pipes and drums of Carnegie Mellon University. Yeah, it's the same Carnegie that, that is from Dunfermline. He is a big thing here and Carnegie Hall in New York and all of that. All of that was founded and funded by a wee boy who left Dunfermline uh, when he was 14 and made a name for himself and made a fortune for himself. I'm hoping to follow in his footsteps, of course. But of course. I'm, a wee bit, I'm a wee bit behind the eight ball, you could say, because he came when, I was, when he was 14 and I came when I was, when I was years old. So there's a piece called Time to Say Goodbye. It features the River City Brass Band and the pipes and drums of Carnegie Mellon University. It was recorded live at the Palace Theatre in Greensburg, which is just up the road from here. And it's a knockout. I think you'll agree. <laughs> ¶¶ 
James, let's rewind the clock now, back to those childhood days. I believe you were around 10 years old in Fife and you found yourself playing the tuba. How did that come about? Oh, well, Mr Ross, the school Janney, came round with one of the school teachers, maybe it was the head teacher, at Methil Hill Primary School. And he said, we want to start a new, uh, we want to start a brass band. Uh, any volunteers? Of course, no hands went up. None. The teacher then read a list of names who, who became the volunteers, you know, Gourley, Puller, Shields, uh, and they were all the ones who were really rubbish at playing football. Um, I had apparently let in the week before 10 goals in one of the local games against some other school, primary school, and, and you know, it was not good. It was not my finest hour. Uh, it cost money, so it, but it was like 10 shillings, 50 pence for, uh, for a term. But even that, I had to say to my mum, you know, my mum and dad later told me that they paid the 50 pence knowing that I would only last a week. <laughs> they got that bit wrong. So I started on the baritone, and because I was the tallest in the group, they um, they quickly put me onto a B-flat bass. The B-flat bass was too big for me, but they used to, they used to prop it on the waste paper basket, put the waste paper basket on the floor and put the B-flat bass on the, on the, on the waste paper basket. And, and that's really how it started. And uh, I became obs obsessed is the word, I would say, and uh, because nobody had to tell me to practice. On the contrary, people, my mum used to come upstairs. We lived in a coal board house, uh, you know, two bedrooms upstairs, living room and a kitchen downstairs. I had three sisters and two brothers. And so there's a lot of people in a, in a small space and there's somebody playing the tuba, a lot, a lot. <laughs> and there's the telly on downstairs. It was like bedlam. I mean, it was bedlam in the house. So, you know, my mum would come up and say, oh, that's enough, son. You've been playing it for a couple of hours now. That's enough now. And she used to literally take it and we would fight, hold on to it. Uh, so if you do that, you're going to get pretty good at it quite quickly. <laughs> so is it fair to say that you caught the bug fairly early on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's very fair to say. I played in the Buckhaven and District Minors Band. That was the first band. And... Uh, Mr. Ross played the second baritone. Then I went to Buckhaven High School and uh, I encountered Bruce Fraser, who was a very helpful teacher for me as well. But I still think of Mr. Ross as being my primary teacher, if you like, because I could already play when I went to Buckhaven High School. But certainly Bruce did a, was a great big influence on my life. And, and it was he really who gave me the idea that I could become... A professional musician, you know, because no, you know, nobody in my family had ever been to a college or been to a university before, you know, generations, but no one had done this. I mean, my career path was mapped out to go down the Seafield pit and become a coal miner like all the people, other people in my street. It really was to quote the Beatles, a ticket to ride, and and Bruce Fraser uh, showed me that, and that was a big incentive because you know, I saw what the Seafield pit did to people. And eventually it closed anyway, and then they were just standing on corners, poking the ground. There must have been something in the water in those days in Fife and, of course, at the Tallis Russell Mills Band too, yeah. in addition to yourself. Other products of that world, of that environment, have included John Wallace and John Miller, among others. What made that time, that era, so special? It's really hard to say. I mean, John Wallace is... Uh, you won't mind me saying this because it's a fact. He left Buckhaven High School when I entered it. So he must be six or seven years older than I am. 
his his name was always given to me as as this, as someone I should look up to. And I didn't meet him for much, much until much, much later. Same with uh, John, aka Jack Miller. When when I joined Patel Russell Mills Band, they had gone respectively to university or the academy in London. So I never really met them until. I was in the band and they came back once or twice uh, just to say hello. But they were always heroes. There was another one around there who you've not mentioned this, is Brian Rankin, who is the principal trumpet of BBC Radio Orchestra uh, in London. And, you know, we used to do all those solo competitions at Denbeath Minors and Cowdenbeath and uh, and uh, and then Kirkcaldy, there was another one. And if you won the cup, those were the names on it. There's Brian Rankin, it was John John Wallace and John Miller. I when I saw those names on those cups, I thought I want to be them. I want I want to play in the next contest and beat these guys. I mean, and super competitive, like that. If I go into a competition, there's only one result I'm interested in. So please, nobody say oh bravo for being second. I hate that. <laughs> How much of an influence did those days have with Bathaven and with Tillis Russell Mills and playing on the, the solo contest circuit? How did much did that shape you as a musician? Well, very much, I would say. You know, if you do a professional audition these days in Europe or in, and in America, I realised this when I auditioned for the Zurich Opera House and I was by then I was mid-30s, so one of the oldest candidates because usually it's just young guys that are doing auditions because the old guys have either, you know, they've either got a job or they're saying, do you want fries with that? Or they're driving Uber. And <clears throat> this is the truth, by the way. <laughs> they're established. But I, I, I did an audition at the Jury Copper House and the first thing you do is you draw a number. I thought, this is like a band contest. You know, I'm drawing number, I'm drawing number 11. This is, this is a good draw. There's only 50 of us, so 11's not a bad draw, you know. And... And you go behind the screen. What's that like? Well, it means the adjudicators are in the box. So it's exactly the same. So, you know, when I walked into that audition, and uh, now I tell my students to do the same thing. In fact, we, we reenact it. We, we have a screen up. They walk in, they draw a number. They practice being uh, doing what I did as a kid. And uh, it's really, really helpful to, to be in, in a box that you know, basically. Hey, I, hey I've got this. I've done it before. I'm going in there. I'm going to play the Vaughan Williams. Okay, in the old days, it used to be in Cellar Cool and the Hardy Norseman and the Ash Grove and the Carnival of Venice, but now it's Vaughan Williams Tuba Concerto. What's the difference? Well, the Vaughan Williams Tuba Concerto is a darn sight easier than all of those air very solos I just mentioned. In terms of your professional career, you didn't hang about. Of course, you embarked upon studies at the Royal College of Music in London, but moved on after a short time to become the principal tuba player at the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Was that a difficult decision to make, or was it just the right move at the time? Oh, it was a no-brainer. It was absolutely an incredible no-brainer. I'd only done about a term, maybe a term and a half at the... Royal College and um, John Jenkins, who was the teacher there, God rest his soul, he he said, "Look, there's an audition going up at Birmingham." And he says, "I, I remember his words. I'm quoting him verbatim. He said, son, you've got no chance, but it's a good experience to do an audition.'" So I said, "Good enough, Mr. Jenkins. I'll, I'll go up there. Even better, they're paying the train fare. Fantastic." And we went up there. There was a big bunch of us all on the same train. We went up. I played. I got a, 
and about four days later, because it was 1974 or five, I got a letter, you know, a proper letter. I still have it somewhere. And it said, dear Mr. Gourley, we, we'd like to offer you a trial as principal troop tuba of the... And I thought, this is the same. They must have got the wrong guy. So... <laughs> I mean, I never played. I'd only played one one concert with the Fife Youth Orchestra. That was my orchestral experience. I wasn't even I wasn't even in the college orchestra. And with the with the Fife Youth Orchestra, it was I thought it was incredibly boring because we played. Wait for it. Tuba players are going to go what? Because we we played the Master Singers Overture and we played uh, Sibelius Finlandia, which is I mean, with retrospect, and I know those are busy tuba parts, but coming from Tullus Russell Mills band, going and thinking, oh, Jenks have got all the bars rest. <laughs> you know, and not even not even just four bars rest, but 500 bars rest, you know, oh my goodness, if you know. <laughs> so I, I, I went to the college guy, um, Mr. Abbott, his name was the registrar. So I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. Eventually they offered me a job and I said, look, I've got this opportunity. Can I do both? Can I come back? You know, because it's not that busy an orchestra. He said, absolutely not. You have to choose. And I would advise that you stayed at the Royal College of Music. And I said, no, thanks. I'm going to, I'm going to take a chance. You know, I was 18 or 17 and uh, offered a job like that. You, who would, who would turn that down? Nobody in their right mind. But it was tough when I arrived because, you know, I knew nothing about how to play in an orchestra. I knew actually maybe less than nothing. And so it was very much like an apprenticeship. It was a tough school, I have to say. It was, they were not gentle sometimes. So I learned to take a knock. How long do you think it took you before you could walk in and feel... Perhaps comfortable is not the correct word, but feel that you had moved on from that stage of knowing, in, in your own words, as you said a moment ago, not so much about playing in that orchestral environment. I, do, I would say it good, took a good couple of years before things really settled. Although I'm, I might be making too black a picture of it, I enjoyed every every second of that orchestra, but it was sometimes it was, hey, no, no, you, it doesn't, no, you don't play, no. You know, people were shouting down the line and uh, you go, Ooh. and then uh, then there's the, the, the great thing of uh, intonation. Oh, intonation, the intonation game. You're playing out of tune. You always play out of tune. You say that to a musician, well, some are going to go. But um, I spoke to the oboe player, Richard Weigel, and said, uh, look, these guys say I play out of tune. Do you think I play out of tune? He said, no, 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 no. How do I find out if I'm playing out of tune or in tune? And it's in 1974. We didn't have nice tuners. We didn't have them on the phone. We didn't have those tuning gadgets. He said, I've got a box of chromatic tuning forks, two octaves. I'll take the box. I took the box and you go bang and put the, tube, put the tuning fork on the bell and play a long note. If you're in tune, beautiful. It feels nice. If you're slightly out of tune, it feels like you've got an electric shock coming through your mouth. In that, all the vibrations, and then you've got those secondary vibrations that are just off. And if you do two octaves like that, very painstakingly, and you can go through and not get that once, then you can say to yourself, actually, I do play in tune. So then when the colleague says, you're out of tune, you say, oh, sorry, mate. I'll sort it out. <laughs> you don't say... No, it's not me, it's you. You don't say anything like that. Now, other orchestral appointments would follow, of course, at the 
BBC Symphony and the Orchestra of Zurich Opera. You were a member of the Philip Jones and English Brass Ensembles, and you've done so much to give the tuba greater recognition and respect. How much of a passion has that been, James, working to ensure the tuba is deservedly seen in the spotlight? It's still a passion, and uh, I still practice about an hour or two every day. And now that I teach, I do a lot of teaching at Duquesne University, just up the road from here. I teach the euphonium, and uh, the euphonium is not my strongest suit, so I practice that more than anything. It's getting better. The euphonium is definitely getting better. But I have to teach the euphonium, tuba in F. I've got, an, I've got a tuba, an E-flat tuba, one E-flat tuba player, several who play the C and one who play the B-flat. And I have all of that in my teaching studio because I feel it's important to play the instrument that the student plays. And uh, the F tuba is not a thing that I played a lot of in my career, but when we went on lockdown here last March, I thought this is a good opportunity because I'm not going anywhere. I haven't got any concerts. So I'll get one of those and, uh, and just practice it like crazy. And it was like going back to the beginning. I have to say, it was like being a beginner again. It was really, really interesting uh, and discovered a lot of things in my own playing that I'd maybe forgotten or habits that bad habits I'd gotten into. And just to, to press the restart button was really refreshing. And, uh, and so I'm still passionate about the tuba. I'm the president of the International Tuba and Euphonium Association. So very much interested in promoting the tuba and, and the euphonium into the art world because, you know, people ignore us, composers ignore us, um, Orchestras ignore the fact that we have tuba soloists that they could book, even their own players, they could be booking uh, to have out the front of the orchestra. So these are things that, that keep me really, really motivated um, and will keep me motivated, I think, forever. And I love to hear people playing and I love the enthusiasm that the tuba euphonium community has around it and that we've built around that. You know, I was super lucky in 1974 when I auditioned for the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, there were maybe 20 people. Now, there'll be 200 people all playing really, really well. And we have, a, uh, we have a, an audition coming up for the US Navy band. And I know all of my uh, 10 students or 12 students will be in for that. And I'm just one teacher in the country uh, with 10 or 12 students. So the, the standard of teaching has increased greatly. And therefore the standard of playing has increased greatly. When I look at the repertoire that I've commissioned over the years thinking, Nobody's going to be able to play this for, you know, forever. If I look at the piece Alarum by Edward Gregson, which he wrote for me, uh, that, was in, that was super hard. It was really cutting edge, incredibly hard. I've got a second year student playing that and playing it really well. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's developing all the time, the technique and musicianship above all of the, of the tuba, tuba and euphonium world is in, increasing greatly. And I, and I put the two together because some of my uh, greatest inspiration comes from uh, euphonium players. I've always tried to have that lyricism that they have seemed to have a standard. I've always tried to have that uh, agility and flexibility that the euphonium uh, has and now that I play a lot more euphonium, I find it is it's easier to do that on the euphonium than on the tuba. But it's not it's not impossible to do it on the tuba as well. So uh, the two instruments for me right now are are helping each other quite a lot, and that's very inspiring. So I've got pictures of famous euphonium players uh, on my studio wall, 
and I look at them when I'm practicing euphonium. <laughs> <laughs> and did I, I used to do that when I was uh, when I was a kid? I used to have a picture of John Fletcher on the of the stand. It's not to say I want to beat you. I want to be better than you. But I want to do some of the things that you can do, and I find that very inspiring. I noticed that my students have copied this now, and they've got pictures of their various heroes on the stand when they're, when they're practicing there. Throughout your musical career, James, the world of brass bands have never been too far away. Of course, you've enjoyed significant conducting appointments and successes with many of the finest bands around, including Fairy and Grimethorpe and brass band Très Étoile. Where did the conducting bug come from and was it a dream come true when you were working with some of those bands? I never thought of becoming a conductor, I have to admit. Um, and Roy Newsom is responsible for me being it. Uh, there was a summer school run by Boozing Hawks about, oh, it's got to be 30 years ago or more, uh, of which uh, Roy was the was the leader of that. And Gordon Higginbottom was on there and Ian Bowsfield and, and, uh, and various others. Uh, Roy Rowe, I remember, they, we, they, they were the tutors. And... Uh, it was a bit like the precursor to the International Brass Band Summer School that's run by um, David Childs and others. It was very much like that. So I was the, the bass tutor and I'm sitting in the in the band playing the bass. And we were playing something like Malcolm Arnold, uh, Little Sweet for Brass. And Roy said, said to me, Jim, uh, would you come and conduct the band whilst I go to the back to listen to the balance? And I thought, well, no problem. It's just down up, you know. It's just in two in the bar. Nothing can possibly go wrong. I'll just go down up until the band stops. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd never really, I never conducted anything before that. And uh, they did it. We did it. And uh, and there was a there was a silence at the end. And I thought, oh my god, I must have done something wrong, like beat three in the two bar or whatever. And then Roy came up and he said, you should do. You know, you should do this. You should do. You should become a, a conductor. And the band all went, yeah, it was great. And I never thought anything of it. And then one of the patrons, one of the delegates of that course, played for Bedworth Street, Thomas and Machen. And they, he phoned me up and said, uh, would I like to go down there and, and conduct the band? And I've always been a man that follows the flow. You know, if there's a star uh, in the East, I'm the guy following it. And uh, I thought, this is a star. Okay, it's in the West, it's in Cardiff. But... <laughs> But I'm going to follow it just to see. I mean, you know, you've only got you've only got one life, so try stuff and don't be worried if you fall flat on your face. But at least you tried it. So I went down there. They liked me, and I liked them a lot, really a lot. And I would go down from London on the back on my BMW motorcycle three times a week to, for rehearsal, Monday and a section on the midweek, and had weekend rehearsals as well. And they got they got to be really good, and uh, we got through to the national finals. I think more than once, and it was a real, real family thing. It was a, it was a, a marvelous thing. But you know, three times a week going down from London on a motorcycle because I didn't drive a car in those days um, was was pretty tough. And so um, I had to, I moved on. But I always enjoyed my time with BTM Bedbuster Thomas and Machen, and uh, look back on that super fondly. If there's anybody from BTM listening, you guys are great. Then, of course, those other opportunities followed. We mentioned those names, Ferry, Grimthorpe and Brass Band Très Étoile in Switzerland. How did you enjoy and how do you reflect upon those musical experiences? Well, I've been really blessed. I do thank God every day for these blessings. Uh, but 
I, I've never been really ambitious. I've never really thought uh, I absolutely want to conduct X or I absolutely need to conduct Y. People have been very nice in my career and still being very nice. And they pick up the phone and send me an email and, uh, and I, I try and do a good job. And I have, a, I have only one rule that for myself is that when I walk, into, when I walk out of the room, that the band sounds a bit better than when I walked in the room. Uh, and I try and keep doing that every single time I walk into the room and it gets better. And uh, over the years, I've learned how to rehearse efficiently. I think there's probably things I can improve. Um, I've learned how to beat clearly and I've learned how to express my musical ideas to the group in front of me, more or less. I've learned to be less of a bully, which I admit I really was at, uh, early on because I had the impression that that's what people wanted or, or needed. And um, then when I switched to not being that, I found I got much better results, far better results, because if people want to, want to play for you, rather than they are frightened not to play for you, the results are so much more satisfying all round for the musicians and for me. To work with fairies was, was fantastic in that era. We won the British Open. We had players around the stand that were just unbelievable gods of the brass band world. Grindthorpe, the same. I had a wonderful time uh, with them. And with Brickhouse, it was one of my favourites, because Brickhouse is Brickhouse. And, uh, you know, you would go there and, and just see 25, 28 grumpy-looking blokes. So you have to become a mixture of Bernard Hytink, the great conductor, and Billy Connolly to, to get them up, you know. Yeah. And, and then something goes wham, and then that band just goes fantastic. Uh, with all of those bands, it was just incredible. And in Switzerland with the Trésitoire, I think that's the one I would actually say I, I missed doing. I, I loved going there. I loved working with people. Their commitment to brass banding is, is second to none. I don't mind saying that out loud. They, they live for it, they are totally passionate about it, and uh, they are just a wonderful organisation, and uh, I wish them very well. You have this multifaceted career, and another area of it has been your work in higher education and conservatoire settings, including senior leadership roles at the Royal Northern College of Music and the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland in Glasgow. How did you enjoy working on that, a, a different side to your musical life? Teaching is, a, teaching is a joy and what we teachers get out of our profession is that incredible buzz when you've helped someone improve. And again, you know, if they improve just a wee bit, that's just as exciting as if they improve a lot. And if that improvement is incremental over a length of time, say a four-year undergraduate degree or a two-year postgraduate degree, then it's really amazing to me. If you can teach the person because you're not teaching a subject you're teaching a person you're working with a person a lot of personal ideas are going to rub, rub off on them you know my values are going to rub off on them my passion for music hopefully rubs off on them that you know that we are doing if we get paid to play our instruments this is this is a gift from god because i mean look my dad was a painter and decorator he hated his work he just put bread on the table and there are billions of people the world over in that position and here are we in the in the performing arts okay we're not millionaires most of us but look we're doing something we love 
and that helps us put bread on the table. That that's my attitude, and I think that's rubbing off on my students, and certainly it's rubbing off on my colleagues. I'm sure that the sheer joy of what we do is unsurpassable. It's just incredible. Clearly, James, you're not someone who's been afraid to travel, to seek opportunities. And of course, now you find yourself living in the USA in your role as artistic and general director of River City Brass Band. Could you have imagined as that wee lad growing up in Fife that you would go on to enjoy such a varied and interesting career? Oh, no. Uh, No, absolutely not. I could never have imagined it. I'm just excited for what's coming next because it's not finished. The journey is, I'm sure the journey isn't finished. I just go with the flow. If I see that star in the east or west, north, south, I'll be following it. And, and that's exciting. That's, that, that keeps me excited about life in general and, uh, and music in particular. That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thanks to James Gourley, and thank you to you for listening. More information on River City Brass Composer Competition is available at the band's website, www.rivercitybrass.org. You can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsmen. It costs just £42.99 for one year. For the latest news and interviews, make sure you don't miss out. Go to britishbandsmen.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, or just ask your smart speaker to play the BB On The Record podcast. Please leave a review if you can, the more the merrier. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now.